This is Sit Rap on BFBS with Kate Jabot. Internet snooping and secret court hearings. Will these things plug the gap in our defences? The head of British forces in the South Atlantic says the Falklands are not an operational backwater. There is a very real military mission here. It's one of deterrence, and if, God forbid, that should fail, it's one of defence. And how former servicemen are training to fight pirates. Secret court hearings and more internet monitoring. David Cameron thinks these are the things that will plug what he describes as significant gaps in our defences. Proposals have been put forward to allow sensitive intelligence information to be heard in secret by a judge and special advocates in civil cases brought against the government. There are also plans to increase monitoring of phone calls, web and email use. The ideas have been criticised by the Deputy Prime Minister Nick Clegg as well as Conservative backbenchers. Well, I'm joined by Richard Norton Taylor, who writes on defence and security affairs for the Guardian newspaper, as well as our BFBS defence analyst Christopher Lee. Hello to both of you, uh, Christopher uh, Richard Norton Taylor. How, in the government's view, is our national security being put at risk? Well, the government says national security is put at risk mainly because the courts here in Britain can reveal intelligence they got from other countries, notably the CIA. It came out in a case a few years ago involving a a British resident who was uh, incarcerated in Guantanamo Bay. The controlled principle means that uh, the the, the Foreign Intelligence Service, which uh, gives another intelligence service information, controls that information, i.e. anything that CIA gives MI5, MI6, or military intelligence for that matter, has got to be uh, kept secret by the British. The courts here revealed a little bit of information that came originally from the CIA. The Americans, the British said, are threatening not to give intelligence. The British, they give one or two examples, quite trivial actually. Um, And that is the argument, the the strongest argument that the British government gives for the, the, the secret court proposals. That is, we will not get intelligence in future from the US. Do we need these reforms, both in terms of secret courts and also in terms of monitoring? Well, the secret courts point, I think, is partly the question on both these initiatives, really, of a question of trust. Can you trust the government uh, because of what they've argued, the coalition government argue against these uh, measures when they're in opposition, of course? Can you trust any government or the, you know, the spooks or you know, security intelligence agencies um, when they claim they want these for A, B and C reasons? Now, um, a lot of the, the Green Papers setting up these secret court proposals uh, is written in a very sort of broad way. For example, anything that a minister or secretary of state can say is uh, sensitive uh, and, and shouldn't be disclosed in the public interest uh, should be kept secret. Now, they say it's up to the judge to make the final decision. However, a judge will only make a sort of decision in a very limited way on the process, on, on, the, on, on the reasons, not even the reasons the British give, give for secrecy, but on, on the process it, it, it went about presenting that case to the court. So it's a very limited technical role for the judge under the current proposals. Now, on the email, that these sort of snooping proposals, if you like, is just extending, the government says, what it already can do, i.e. Uh, telephone conversations with a warrant, but also email addresses. Not the content of emails, but uh, who you're... Um, sending one to and what um, information you're picking up from other people on the internet is got to be extended to new forms, new in quotes forms of communications like social networks, Skype and so on. Uh, the government says that is just a technical measure to keep up with what terrorists are up to in the cyber space. Um, there again, 
uh, it'll be for the police and a wide range of agencies to, to be able to do this. The opposition, civil libertarians and so on, say judges must monitor this too. Chris Lee, what, what do you think? Do you think that argument is keeping up with social media, that, that needs to be done, these new powers need to be given? Yeah, you, you, you've got to give the powers that the intelligence people advise, but you've got to have a safeguard. Now, for example, the um, person that heads up Liberty, you know, the... Um, uh, uh, Shami Shakrabarti. Shami yeah. Shakrabarti. She is probably going to have quite an influence over what the government thinks of it. I've read through the Green Paper. As Richard says, it's sort of vague, but then it is a Green Paper. A Green Paper is opposed to a White Paper, therefore it's a consultative document. A lot of this has got to be filled in. The other side of it, we've got a very good illustration this week... In America, uh, the guy they call KSM, Khalid Sheikh Mohammed, who is supposed to have masterminded 9-11, and sometimes claims that he did, uh, he and four others are going to go on trial. When Obama came into power in 2009, he said, I will have these people in the civilian courts. Congress said, no, you won't, because of the sort of thing that Richard's been talking about, the difficulties of, 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 of splitting information from the intelligence services. So they're going, their trial will take place before a military commission. That means any sensitive information will not Indeed. get into the public domain, and that's the important part of the whole thing. Indeed, and in terms of the sharing of intelligence, there are claims today that the US has actively withheld intelligence for fear that the sources could oh. be revealed in a British court. You're, you're laughing, are you there? Um, uh, Richard Norton-Taylor, I'm, well, I'm not laughing. This is a clear plant from the... Uh, to the Daily Telegraph, and especially the first edition, mm. uh, first page of the Daily Telegraph today, um, and uh, the um, I have to say that uh, it, it's by a political editor of the Daily Telegraph. I'll uh, just uh, I'll just tell, tell you what that is. It, basically, the, the claim is that, that that intelligence has been withheld because the Americans were were, were afraid. Some intelligence, some details, some bits of information w- yes. about a putative plot were withheld. They always have done, with, haven't with, they, Richard? The, the, the plot's yeah. supposed to be a Mumbai-style plot in the UK. The, yes. Uh, whether this, this, is, this, this information or this allegation or claim that the Americans did or the CIA did withhold some, some detailed information... Was it them. important if, if it were no. true anyway? And, and no, one says it point, is important. Yes. no one says it's important. Yes, and it was... It was uh, if, Certainly uh, not life and death information. Because that information is still getting through, as I understand. Important information, yes. And don't forget also that the French... We, we talk about the CIA withholding information. This, it, this two-way street of uh, intelligence. Yeah. Uh, is, there are other people involved. For example, the French. But we've got another uh, thing, haven't we, at the moment? Do you remember this guy? Uh, was it Hafiz uh, Saeed, isn't it, uh, uh, Richard? Yeah. He was the Alashgar uh, Taiba man. Yeah. And they're talking about the Mumbai attack here. Yes. Indeed. And so the Americans have bought up a $10 million bounty for him. We, anybody who can tell us where he is... And so what happens? He comes out of hiding. He's in Islamabad. And he says, well, here I am. You're going to kind of catch me. You know, the whole thing can be sort of uh, stage managed. And if you're in France, it's stage managed because Sarkozy is going for re-election, etc. So far... Uh, that hasn't got to that point in the United Kingdom, I don't think. And, and Richard, on the monitoring of our communications, how yes. much is the public already under surveillance without necessarily knowing it? Well, the, the British, as Americans, uh, since we're talking about America, uh, and, but also every other country, so the British are most, the most surveyed, surveyed country um, uh, uh, in the world. Now, that normally refers to, when people say that, uh, CCTV cameras. Now, CCTV cameras in the street, British people seem to generally say they're not necessarily a bad thing because they actually prevent a lot of, uh, or, or, or lead to the arrest, rather, of criminals, straightforward criminals. 
and degree of abduction of kids and all that stuff. And it's a, it's, a, it's a public safety issue. People generally seem to support CCTV. But what about communications? That's the they're talking to all sorts of people all sorts of times. How will that that information will be withheld? That is private information. What percentage is actually going to lead to any sort of terrorist plot anyway? Which uh, most terrorists, like the IRA showed in the past, although a very disciplined group they were. Um, do not um, take out their own counterintelligence measures. I mean, people do, uh, and that's what the uh, intelligence security uh, agencies tell me, and the police too, for that matter, that uh, serious criminals and, t- and potential terrorists uh, use a, a mobile for a couple of days at most and throw it away and get a new number. So that's, you know, that's their counterintelligence. There's a good point here to remember. If I'm a policeman and I want to know what telephone calls you've made, I can. I can get your telephone calls for the past year. What I can't get is the content of them without yeah. getting a warrant to do so. If you go to America, there is in... No, but the Calif- fear, is, the fear yeah. is that there would only be a small step to going that far. The fear is that if it went any further, and it can go further if you get a warrant, for example, is who decides, and at the moment you'd have, say, for example, to go to the Home Secretary for it. And so this is really a story between the Home Secretary and the Justice Ministry. Um, but the important thing is... Um, who will monitor this? Who will actually yeah. say we've gone too far? And if Shamishak Party, for example, of liberty is involved in it, um, then she has very definite views and the government take lots of notice for her. It's when it is corrupted, the system is corrupted for reasons of intelligence, because something's happening, because there is a terrorist scare or whatever. If you go to the United States, in California, there is a whole setup which is intelligence-based and if all the telephone companies have to give all the telephone calls to that organisation and they can be monitored. But because there are so many, you can't monitor them all. What you do, you look for trigger words, for example. If I said to you, like, for example, Al-Qaeda on the telephone, then in America it might be picked up. That's a trigger word. But it's the monitoring, it is the safeguards, which, which is really at the basis of whether the, the legislation that could go through we could go into our white paper will succeed. And Richard Norton-Taylor, what, what, what kind of safeguards do we need? What is the right balance between protecting our national security and, for instance, having an open court system? Well, you should have some kind of independent monitoring. By independent, I mean outside the, in the intelligence bureaucracy that's gathered the information. Don't forget that every intelligence bureaucracy wants as much information as possible just in case that actually leads, as Christopher has suggested, to actually inefficiency. You should get actually sort of blinded. You get under... Over, overwhelmed by, by bits of information. You don't, can't tell the wood from the trees and so on. So you want some, anyway, you want some independent judicial, I would say, uh, um, scrutiny. Now, and, and if possible, a parliamentary committee meeting in private. Now, we do have one now. It's not very really good, I have to say, the Intelligence Security Committee. Um, so uh, effective and trusted, uh, credible, independent monitoring by someone who is vetted, of course, who won't spill the beans, but who can be trusted. All right, Richard Norton Taylor from The Guardian, thank you for your time today. Sit Rep with Kate Still to come, how former members of the British forces are being trained in Malta to fight pirates off Somalia, and why a copy of the original Telex announcing Argentina's surrender in the Falklands fetched more than £5,000 at auction. PFBS Sit Rep.
The head of British forces in the South Atlantic urged the men and women under his command to get a sense of their mission by talking to Falkland Islanders, who 30 years ago today were into their fourth day of armed occupation. As Buenos Aires ramps up the rhetoric, Brigadier Bill Aldridge has told BFBS that no one should regard a posting there as being sent to an operational backwater. He spoke to our reporter Jeff Mead, who joins us now from the BFBS studio in Mount Pleasant Complex. Uh, hello, Jeff. What has Brigadier Aldridge been telling you then? Has he had anything to say about the perceived threat from Argentina? Very much so. I mean, this is really uh, in the air, uh, given the rhetoric that's been coming from Buenos Aires. And I think uh, Brigadier Aldridge, who uh, commands uh, the, the garrison here, uh, is concerned that uh, those uh, uh, soldiers, uh, Marines and, and Air Force personnel, uh, deployed here might get a sense that it's all happening in Afghanistan. Quite rightly, that's where the priority is. Um, but he is very concerned that they, they remain focused, that this is uh, keenly an, an operational theatre. Uh, although, as you'll hear, he did say that a lot of the, uh, the tension, perhaps, had been somewhat ramped up artificially. Fortunately, um, bullets aren't flying here. And despite um, the best efforts of the media to perhaps say otherwise... Um, this is not a shooting war. It's very much um, a political um, and economic issue. But that said, um, there is a very real military mission here. It's one of deterrence, and if, God forbid, that should fail, it's one of defence. Um, and it is not difficult um, to tell the young men and women who come here every week um, what they're here to do. And if they've got any doubt, all they need to do is go and speak to the local, the Falkland Islanders. Um, they know why the British military are here. They want us here. Um, you know, it's almost a unique situation. Um, the local population um, are totally on the side. They're the ones who will, who will tell the young men and women what things were like 30 years ago and why they don't want to return to anywhere like that. Well, you've been down in the Falklands, Jeff, for a while now. What is life like for the Falkland Islanders in 2012 compared to 1982? Unrecognisable. Uh, I mean, this is really um, a, a modern, progressive, uh, affluent territory at the moment. Uh, and some Falkland Islanders, uh, when they speak frankly to you, say actually uh, the war kind of propelled this place from being a, a pretty basic subsistence, almost semi-feudal uh, society uh, into it, it put them on the map. It made people aware uh, of, of uh, their existence very much so. It brought in... British investment and investment from overseas. Um, there's a census being held here shortly, and that, I think, will reveal that the population has increased somewhat uh, considerably since 1982. A lot of those, a good proportion of those, are ex-forces people who came here either before the war or during the war uh, and have settled. Um, I spoke to one such family, uh, Jimmy Moffat, an ex-Royal Marine, and his wife Angela, and uh, Jimmy started by describing to me exactly what liberation had meant to them. Our freedom had been taken away and it, and it had just been given back to us, and that was something that made the hairs on the back of your neck stand up. One word would sum up living in the Falkland Islands, and that is paradise. Uh, Jeff, I imagine you're not the only journalist who's out there in paradise this week. Yeah, it's a heaven uh, that, of course, is disputed. Um, and 
although the islanders themselves are not making a great deal of the 30th anniversary of the invasion, you can understand it's, although they regard uh, with some pride the way uh, the, the local defence force and the Royal Marines uh, resisted the overwhelming for- force of Argentinians, it's not a date they look back to uh, with, with any pleasure, obviously. Um, for Argentina, uh, the anniversary also has been a major event. Most of the journalists uh, that I've encountered uh, whilst I've been in Stanley uh, have been from the mainland. And it's interesting their perception is that uh, the, uh, the, the, the sovereignty of this island, of these islands, is very much theirs. This is, ha- this is truly what they believe as strongly as Britain and the Falklanders believe it is theirs. So, so there are, this is all about land and blood, two uh, very strong elements. And uh, as the Falkland, uh, Falklands Islands cost 255 British lives and three locals, the Argentinians lost uh, some 650 also. So for them, this is a very real, a very potent issue. It's not simply political rhetoric. It's kind of in the DNA of Argentinian society uh, that this territory truly belongs to them. And if you talk, it's interesting, Kate, if you talk to young Falkland Islanders, particularly those born since 1982, uh, who regard uh, their future as very much here, then they accept that there will have to be in the longer term, some kind of compromise over sovereignty. Uh, but that is a long way off. That's very and interesting. Certainly, I, I think the generation of 1982 would resist that at the moment. Indeed. Um, Christopher, on the idea of the diplomatic rhetoric, or perhaps undiplomatic rhetoric, uh, Argentina has been very outspoken this week. But interestingly, the rest of South America hasn't really been very vocal on anything or even turned up to uh, the president's speeches this week. No, I mean, the president's been speaking. I mean, when the president was been speaking down at Ashore, it is very important that because that's the administrative district that if Argentina actually had the Falklands that's where it would all been that's where it would have been and so all the all the all the veterans were there and so that's a great forward uh, a great sort of political uh, sort of soapbox you've got to remember that if you go back let's say two weeks in fact two weeks yesterday there was a meeting in Peru and it was all the foreign ministers of the South American states up in Chile there was a meeting of all the foreign min- uh, of the finance ministers. They all supported what Argentina had to say. Very few of them really care that much. But you can't not you can't back out. You can't abstain from those sort of uh, statements. More importantly, when you get to the United Nations, and Argentina has a point here, when it says, "Well, you know, this has been on the card since not eighty two, but nineteen sixty five." That's when you had the United Nations said we have to sort out these post-colonial uh, difficulties. Don't forget, 65, we still, the United Kingdom still had colonies in 1965. That is when the argument begins. And that is why, because that part of it, also the fact that the Americans, the United States, has an interest in what South Americans have to say, that is why you will not get public and full-hearted support for the British point of view from the United States. All right, gentlemen, for the moment, thank you. BFBS. Now, the UN Arab League envoy Kofi Annan is expecting both the Syrian government and the opposition to fully implement a ceasefire agreement by April the 12th. According to his spokesman in Geneva, on April the 10th, the Syrian government will have completed its withdrawal from populated centres and then there'll be a 48-hour period during which all violence will stop, or will it, Christopher Lee? Uh, I tell you, yesterday, 
um, in uh, Homs, where al- almost the whole thing is centred, the whole uh, revolution is centred. There is a big warehouse, and in that warehouse is the Syrian Red Crescent, the equivalent of the Red Cross, uh, which was about to start a distribution of aid, comfort, medical supplies, etc. And it was sabotaged. It was blown up. Now, that, the cynics would say, that is not the the workings of a country. It's not the, the authority of the president, even, who may not have the main authority to what happens next. That is not the sort of peaceful way forward for the ceasefire, etc. If you really want to judge what is going to happen, you have to look at what the president, President Assad's brother, is doing. He's the one with the power, is he? He is, is a man called uh, Mahe. He commands, among other things, he commands the 4th Armour Division. It is that organisation, that army division, which actually is at the source of the putting down any opposition. He is the man that actually controls also the intelligence gathering. He is the guy that says, OK, I think we ought to bomb that town, that area. And don't forget, he is the man also that understands that what we, I think, too loosely refer to as the opposition. Um, he is the man that understands that the opposition is very, very loose, and it is not that well-organised, and he believes that if that opposition gets anywhere closer into Damascus, which he's stopping... Um, then the whole Alawite uh, controlling body in Syria is in trouble. Because mm-hmm. if they all go, where do they go to, etc., and too many people are involved in this. So when we have to turn, when we have to say, is it likely there is a ceasefire? There is only a ceasefire if there is a secret agreement that Assad and co, including his brother and all their friends and the people that hang on and all the patronage, if that's being protected. And that is the biggest job, and the only people who can do that is the Arab League. The UN member states are being asked to provide troops to a ceasefire monitoring mission um, to be deployed after April the 10th. Is that really going to happen? What kind of troops would be involved to protect them potentially? Well, I mean, who do you protect? And that is the problem. Um, you, if you if you put troops on the ground, you've got to have this, the support that goes with it, like medical support. You, you've got to have logistics that go with it. And that is one of the difficult things. Nobody wants to put troops on the ground there. You can put troops on the ground, but how the heck do you get out? If the ceasefire were broken, could you put troops, UN troops on the ground? I don't think so. No, no, you couldn't, because the troops, in theory, the troops on the ground at that stage can only be brought in if the host country, i.e. Syria, says, please... And Syria at the moment is not likely to do that. Christopher, for the moment, thank you. The EU's operation to tackle piracy in the waters around Somalia has been extended for a further two years. Operation Atalanta will continue until at least 2014, and for the first time, the ships taking part will be authorised to fire at pirate targets on land. But merchant ships will still rely heavily on private security guards, many of whom are ex-forces. BFBS reporter Charlotte Cross has been to see a counter-piracy course run by the private security firm Maritime Asset Security and Training, or MAST, in Malta. 
Just off the coast of Malta, former British soldiers on a maritime security course get up close to an oil tanker for the first time. As they approach the giant ship in a small boat, it gives them a pirate's eye view of what they're up against. They could be on board in teams as small as two or three, combating pirates heavily armed with automatic weapons and RPGs. Former soldier Robbie Allen has been working on ships for the last year. There is an apprehension there. If you've been in the army for quite a while or any military service, whether it be the Marines or the Navy or whatever, then you've got that already behind you. And so if you can put that experience you've used in other uh, operational theatres and just try change it to the uh, to seagoing or maritime, then I think you're, uh, you're on a winner straight away and you always have the upper hand against the pirates. Private security firm Mast hopes to train around 600 service leavers in maritime security this year. The week-long course in Malta qualifies them to work as armed guards on board merchant vessels as they transit through the Gulf of Aden and beyond. 30,000 merchant vessels pass through the official high-risk area every year and a quarter of those now have private security on board. Paul Fernie is ex-infantry and now works in counter-piracy. He says it's the best deterrent against an attack because pirates are usually looking for the soft option. It's all intelligence-driven, so whatever area you're in will determine what sort of drills and skills you're going to carry out. But whilst the security team is on board that vessel, it's on that bridge 24 hours a day. So nobody's in danger of any piracy attack or boarding the vessel because of what we will do prior to them trying to board the vessel. The students learn defensive measures, such as how to wrap razor wire around ship railings and stairways to stop pirates boarding. Training courses teach best practice, which the major shipping companies have signed up to. With an increase in pirate activity, the maritime security industry is booming. There are upwards of 500 companies in the UK alone. But it's also becoming more professional, and insurers require certain standards. Karen Houston is training manager with MAST in Malta. People put security teams on boats to guard them. I think it was sort of a stopgap maybe in their minds in the beginning, but then they realised, hey, this is a long-term thing, and we're going to need proper legislation along the way. So... All the time, things are getting stricter and stricter about the teams that go on the boat and how they act and what they're allowed to do, what they're not allowed to do. Right now, 13 vessels and nearly 200 hostages are being held by pirates and there have already been seven hijackings so far this year. The EU's Operation Atalanta, which tackles piracy in the waters around Somalia, has just been extended for another two years. EU Navy ships can now take more robust action, striking inland targets used by pirates before they have the chance to put to sea. Here's Defence Secretary Philip Hammond. Piracy is a problem and the situation in Somalia is a problem which we are addressing with the uh, most recent United Nations resolution and the much increased African Union force uh, on the ground in that country. We will continue to look at all the options and work with our allies in Europe and beyond uh, to ensure the safety of shipping on the Horn of Africa. It's a significant expansion of the rules of engagement, but more successfully combating piracy means careers in maritime security could be short-lived. Charlotte Cross reporting from Malta. Uh, Christopher, big business, this counter-piracy stuff, isn't it? It is. Um, the important thing, you can put as many as marshals, you know, sea marshals, as you like, into ships. You have two things to watch for. One is the rules of engagement. And two, are they are they uh, responsible to anybody? Could they actually be prosecuted? 
and that is a very, very difficult one. And international lawyers at the moment, especially maritime lawyers, uh, it, it's for them it's an adventure playground. Yeah, a lot of money to be made out of it, it's I'm sure. A, you know, my learned friend is, is going to do rather well out of the whole thing, but it's a very serious thing. Uh, the other day there was somebody was shot up, and they weren't pirates, they were fishermen, and they were killed. What else is around this week we should be looking out for, Christopher? Well, it sounds unlikely, but the Serbian president, Boris Tadic, resigned yesterday, which means there will be an election in May. Is that important? Yes, because he's going to try and get rejig the economy. He wants to get into the EU. The EU is actually saying, yeah, that's another country we've got to handle, and therefore the budgets are going to go funny. And by 2014, 2015, when we're trying to get more money, there'll be less money to swill around. And some news on American forces. Yes, the, the, the Americans have actually bought in uh, a battalion into Australia. And that's part of, they're going to build up a quite a, a, quite a big group in Australia. You imagine what the Chinese are saying. They're looking to us, so why, why are you coming here? I think something to watch on why the Americans, out of Afghanistan, into Australia. Struth. Interesting times. Now, how much would you pay for a little bit of history? Elena has the bid then at 5,008 on the telephone. Last chance here. Are we all done at £5,800 then? Thank you very much. That was the price fetched at auction this week for the piece of paper which confirmed the end of the Falklands War. The copy of the original telex announcing that Argentina had surrendered was sold to an anonymous American bidder. Uh, Christopher, are you surprised by how much it went for? No. No, these, uh, these things are absolutely sort of marvellous. I mean, the, uh, some of the diary notes that, for example, Nelson had written just before the Battle of Trafalgar, in which, of course, he was killed, uh, are worth an absolute fortune. I mean, there are people who become... Who owns them? Uh, or part of them are owned by the family. Part of them are owned by the uh, National Maritime Museum. Some are actually owned by the Nelson Society. But people become sort of anoraks for this sort of thing. Um, I mean, that particular document, the Falklands document, I think there are about seven or eight copies of it. Indeed. Um, and that also becomes important because people say there are only seven or eight copies of it. And, and so it, it, it does become... A, now, the Nelson thing, for example, the importance of that is not so much what he said. Like, for example, he was ordering £3,000 of onions. <laughs> this guy is about to face an ang a French and Spanish fleet... And he's ordering onions from Gibraltar for the fleet. So confident. Do we know why? Uh, because they had to have onions. I mean, you know, onion was a basic diet in the ship and, and his supply officer wasn't there. So Nelson said, I'd better do it. But the important thing, it was in Nelson's handwriting. And then when you go to Lüneburg Heath and you go after the Second World War, the war in Europe anyway, and you see the signatures, and that's what people want to see, the signatures on the end where it says Montgomery. And and what, is sort of it, it, what is the interest in it exactly? Is it what it reveals about the thinking of people at the time? Is it the way it's worded? Yeah, it's, it's, it's being that close to history. You know, if you can pick up this document... And it actually says, because it interests you. Now, you know, earlier we were talking to Jeff in, 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 in the Falklands, and he was talking about some of the younger generation. It may not have that effect. Maybe they wouldn't have paid that sort of money for that telegram. But a hell of a lot of telex, but a hell of a lot of people of an older generation would have said, yeah, that's part of our lives, that's part of our heritage. And that's what it's all about. Christopher, thank you. That's all we have time for this week. My thanks to our contributors, to Richard Norton-Taylor and, of course, Christopher. Let us know your thoughts on today's programme. You can follow us on Twitter. Tweet us at BFBSSITREP or send us an email. The address is sitrep at bfbs.com. Thanks for listening. We'll be back next week and bye-bye for now. 